Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. Let me welcome you once again and tell you Merry Christmas. We're so excited that you're here tonight. Um, I should probably be embarrassed to tell you, but this time of year, I sort of like to read those, uh, the letters that kids write to Santa. Anybody else with me on that? I want to share a couple that I came across this week, okay? Here's the first one. Dear Santa, there are three little boys that live in our house. There's Jeffrey, he's two. There's David, he's four. And there's Norman, he's seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. But Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. (laughs) There's the second one. Dear Santa, you did not bring me anything good last year. You did not bring me anything good the year before that. This is your last chance. Signed, Alfred. You see, Christmas is supposed to be a perfect time, right? And Advent and worship services are supposed to be perfect, and there aren't supposed to be any technical difficulties, right? And the candles aren't supposed to be leaning or crooked. Everything's perfect. That's the impression you'd get if you're scrolling through the Instagram accounts of most churches this time of year. Did any of you watch those Hallmark movies? My my kids would be mortified for me to tell you that they love those things. You know, everything just works out perfectly in those movies. Just think about some of the movies that we watch this time of year. A Christmas Carol, right? Scrooge is all messed up and everybody hates him, but in the end, everything's wonderful and it all works out. It's a wonderful life. In the midst of turmoil and hardship, what do we see? We see that in the end, it all works out. Even Christmas vacation, Clark Griswold gets his Christmas bonus and ends up somehow pulling off the perfect Christmas, at least for himself. Think about the pictures that we use around Christmas. The family is assembled and everything is just decorated perfectly. Everyone's so peaceful. Families all together. No one is left out of the picture. The entire family in matching clothes. Thank goodness they're not like these clothes. And there's always just the right amount of snow on the ground, right? You never see the reality of what it's like in most of the parts of the country where people are driving through gray slush in their salt-covered SUVs. No, at Christmas, you're riding in a sleigh with the love of your life who happens to be a model. And you just have these beaming smiles on your face because it's Christmas. And everything is perfect. Our children think that way, don't they? I mean, we did that when we were kids. 
Christmas time is that absolutely spectacular season when everything works out just right. And you get only the things that you wanted. And the toys, they're going to work perfectly, just like they do in the commercials. And they're going to last forever. And they're going to fulfill every desire of my heart. Isn't that the pressure that we place on ourselves? Isn't that what Christmas is all about? But let's be honest. The problem is that underneath it all, we know that it's not perfect. It hasn't been perfect during the year. And things haven't been working out right. And just because it's Christmas doesn't mean that all of a sudden, through some Christmas magic, it's working out now. There are wounds from the past that still haven't healed. There are relationships that are still broken that we struggle with. People who won't be at that table. There are things in ourselves that we don't like. And those things remain. You might remember the Apostle Paul. He struggled with some kind of issue. It continually distracted him. He prayed that it would leave him. Some scholars say that it was a disease or a sickness. Some say it was an area of life or a sin that he struggled with. We don't really know exactly what it was, but we know that he was distracted and distressed by it. It was his weakness. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, Paul writes this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You know what? Truth be told, in this way, we're a lot like Paul. We have some unfulfilled dreams, and we have some things that we've been praying about, sometimes for years. And we have issues that we're trying to work through. And then Christmas comes, and it seems to make it all worse because Christmas is supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be a big time of celebration. Christmas is supposed to be like that perfectly wrapped gift. You know the kind, the one that looks like Martha Stewart herself wrapped the thing. But the one that we actually get is so ratchet. It's completely janky and wrapped up in a mess of newspaper and duct taped together and, you know, covered in dirt. And it's so at that point, we have a choice. We have a choice to believe only what we see and our experience from our perspective through the lens of the issues and the things that we struggle with and the faults and our failures, or we have a choice to believe in God, our God, who keeps his promises. The God who said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Do you believe that? Believe our eyes or believe our God, that's our choice. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, face some of the same choices. In the Christmas story, there's this moment of incredible celebration. We see it uh, in Luke 1.41. It was read just a second ago. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Elizabeth is no longer barren. 
And Mary comes to Elizabeth with this incredible news. She's met an angel. Even the baby inside Elizabeth's womb dances for joy. It's an incredible moment of celebration. Something great is going to happen through Mary that's going to tear down oppression, tear down false rulers, raise up the poor to bring honor to Israel and to bring salvation to God's people. Elizabeth's baby knows this. This is all going to happen through Mary and her child, the child whose birth we celebrate tomorrow morning. But it's only a moment of celebration. We've got to remember that. See, Elizabeth had years of being barren before this moment in her life. Luke 1.7 tells the story. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Years where she had been not able to bear children and had to bear instead the stigma of being childless in a society where being childless was something considered maybe almost a judgment from God. And Mary, Mary had some things ahead of her. She's going to carry a baby that people are going to think is illegitimate. And they're probably not going to believe her story about how that happened either. Soon she's going to bear that child in a stable. She's going to be a refugee, and then later in life, she's going to watch her son be rejected and executed as a criminal. It's not all going to be picture perfect for Mary. See, life wasn't perfect for either of them, if what we mean by perfect is flawless and easy, if what we mean is beautiful and inviting, if we mean everything always working out right, if we mean free from sorrow and hardship, if that's what we mean, then it wasn't perfect. Hard times were coming, times when the very promises that Mary sings about, the promises about the fact that God has blessed her and scattered the proud and brought down rulers and raised up the poor and filled them with everything they need. We see Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 through 55. She sings, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. His holy name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. There were going to be moments in Mary's life that those very words would seem hollow, and so at that, those moments, she faced the same choice that we face today. Is she going to believe her eyes or is she going to believe her God? That's her choice. Just a few months later, she's going to be in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth. And there won't even be a place for her to stay. And at that point, who thinks 
she might have some questions. Who thinks that she might have, be asking God some questions? God, is this the way it's supposed to be? What happened? What went wrong? Did I hear you right? And she'll have a choice. Does she believe her eyes? Or does she believe her God? A couple of years later, her husband Joseph is going to come to her. And he's going to say, hey Mary, we've got to leave. We've got to go to Egypt. You know, Egypt... The, the nation that's, that's an enemy of Israel. The nation that's always oppressed and hurt Israel. And I'm not sure where we're going to live. And oh, I, I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do for a living. And the questions come. God, can this possibly be your plan? What went wrong? How are we wrong? Does she believe her eyes? Or does she believe her God? Many more years later, her baby grows up and Jesus begins his ministry. Oh, what a glorious time. After It's all they've been waiting for. And now Jesus is in action. Yes, God, here it is, the fulfillment of the promises that you gave me 30 years earlier. And then her son steps out and begins his ministry. And he's rejected by the religious leaders and controversy happens. And Mary has to wonder, What's wrong with God's plan? Did I hear God correctly? And she has a choice. Does she believe her eyes? Or does she believe her God? And then the crucifixion. It was at that moment that even Jesus' closest, even the disciples thought all human hope is over. There are no more answers that we can drum up. The promise, the promised person is dead. Cursed of God by being hung on a tree. And at that moment, as Mary watched her son nailed to a cross, as he looked down and declared, Behold, your son. Mary had to ask the question. She had to make a choice. Is she going to believe her eyes? Or is she going to believe her God and the promises that he made? We face the same struggles. Because we've also received some promises from God, haven't we? But sometimes we tend to trust our experience and what we see more often than what God has promised. Let's take a very basic one, the promise that God will bless us in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's a promise we can hold on to. And yet as we hold on to that, life happens. And perhaps we find ourselves saying, God, you said that you would bless me. And yet I'm still not married and I want to be. God, you said you would bless me, but I'm sick and I'm not getting any better. You, you said you'd bless me, but I'm still depressed. You said you'd bless me, but I'm still hurting from some things that happened to me in the past. God, you said you would bless me, but my job, or my child, or my family. God, you said you would bless me, but life is so hard. And at those moments, we, just like Mary, and just like Elizabeth, we have to ask the question, we have to make the choice. Are we going to believe our eyes? Are we going to believe our God? 
Let me remind you again of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Do you believe that? See, Mary and Elizabeth understood something that I think we need to understand. Because when it comes to the promises of God, when it comes to the action of God in this world, when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit in this world, something they understood that we need to understand is that there's an already and there's a not yet. Pastor Dave talked about this last weekend. See, there are things that God has already done and there are things that he's not done yet. That's what Advent is all about. It's a time of expectation. We celebrate that Christ has come, but we celebrate that he's coming again. We're in between. There's an already. We're already children of God. And yet 1 John 3, 2 tells us we don't know yet what we'll be like when Jesus comes again. Acts 26, 18, we're already turned from darkness to light if we believe in Jesus. Free from the power of Satan because of the power of Christ. But we're not yet at a point where we don't have the daily struggles with the reality of sin in our lives. We're already in a relationship with God, but we're longing for the day when we're continually in his presence. We're already in a state where Jesus has won the battle against sin and hatred and injustice. Yet we still live in a world that's dominated by prejudice, hatred, sin, and injustice. This is the season of Christmas parties. Already, the invitations are going out for God's eternal party. Even right now, we have a taste of it. We taste the power of the age to come. We experience the changes inside that are a picture of what's to come. Yet we're not at the moment where God himself hosts the table and wipes the tears from everyone's eyes. We're not there yet. And so what that means for us is that what we see through our eyes is incomplete. 1 Corinthians um, The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says that we see is in a poor reflection, like we're looking into a mirror that's dirty, and it's in poor light, and it's distorted. That's our current view of reality. Anybody who's driven long enough has experienced at one point or another that you're in a car and maybe one of the side view mirrors is missing or it's broken, or maybe it's cracked or There's a piece missing, or maybe you just can't get that little thing to work right. And so you're driving, and you see something, but you can't really trust the mirror. And so you have to look over the other way. That's our view of what reality is now. It's broken. It's distorted. It's incomplete. It can't be trusted. Because our viewpoint now is narrower than it should be. We don't have any knowledge of the future, and what we see now is blurred and distorted by our own emotions and by our own selfishness. And sometimes it's blurred by our own tears. What we see now isn't really all that clear. So I'll ask you again, are we going to believe our eyes? Are we going to believe our God? 
And, and think about how much eyesight is worth. Think about the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection on that Friday. What would your eyesight have told you on that day that Jesus was crucified? For example, in John 20, verse 19, we see the disciples living in utter fear of their lives after Jesus was crucified. It says this, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Thomas, a disciple of Jesus, says this when he's told that Jesus was alive. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Our eyesight is incomplete. And so we have to make a choice to trust in this limited kind of eyesight or to trust in our God and his promises. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Do you believe that? As we close, let me share three points of application that can help us deal with the knowledge that we, what we see or feel may be in conflict with what God promises. First, we need the gospel of this baby born of Mary. And what is the gospel, you might ask? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we have a need. The cross of Jesus is proof of that need. Apart from Jesus, our lives are in danger. We're spiritually adrift. We're dead in our sins, hopeless in our fallen state. We're estranged from our creator, God. But for our sake, God the Father made Jesus Christ the Son to be sin. Jesus was without sin. It is the sinlessness of Jesus that qualifies him as an acceptable substitute, a worthy sacrifice to receive the punishment that we deserved for our rebellion against God. You see, only one who is entirely sinless can bear the sins of others. The Apostle Peter writes this, The righteous must be offered for the unrighteous. This is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God. The Father asked this of Jesus for our sake. The sacrifice was not offered because we're deserving. It is offered because we're loved. The sinless one became sin for us. The full force and weight of God's judgment. And sin falls upon Jesus. It is then in Jesus that we find refuge and shelter from the judgment and condemnation of sin. It's in Jesus that an exchange takes place. Jesus takes our sin upon his sinless body. And in exchange, we, by faith, become the righteousness of God. That's what we call justification. If you're keeping score, and the score is being kept, by the way, our sin is counted to Christ. And his righteousness is counted to us. In Jesus, it's as if we've never sinned. We've been declared innocent. Not because we're innocent in our actions 
Because Christ, the innocent one, and in faith, his righteousness becomes ours. That's the good news. Uh, That's the gospel. This is the message of reconciliation, and this is the promise of hope and forgiveness and eternal life with Christ. All made possible by that baby that Mary carried inside of her. She met up with Elizabeth. It's no wonder her baby leaped with joy. So we need to understand the gospel. Second, we need to turn our sorrow into prayer. Without the whole picture, without, with our limited eyesight, sorrows and disappointments sometimes can push us from God. But if we learn how to pray about them, <coughs> sorry, if we admit our feelings about them and go to the Bible and to God's truth about them and his promises about them, wrestle with that and pray about that, we can come to a point where we can be thankful in the midst of it all. Not, not necessarily thankful for all the aspects of it. Not thankful for all of the details, perhaps. But thankful because we know that God is in control. We know that God cares and we know that somehow God will take even these terrible circumstances and somehow bring good from them for us. So we need to learn how to pray. Third, we need to hold on to God's promises. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What we see is not what we get. Eyesight can let us down, so we need to hold on to the promise. I remember once I received a beautiful gift. It was... I mean, it was beautiful. It was wrapped so nicely. And if the outside was any indication of what was on the inside, this was going to be a fantastic gift. I opened it up, and what do you think I found on the inside? Underwear and a bag of Swedish fish. I'm still disappointed. With our limited eyesight, all we can see is what is on the outside of the box. We can only see the superficial. But what's inside is the promise that counts. You know, the church can't promise you that everything is always going to work out right. Can't promise you that it's always going to be easy and that there's not going to be pain. That there's not going to be suffering that there are not going to be times that you don't question if God's promises are real. We can't make that promise to you. In fact, based on Scripture, we can promise the opposite. We can promise that sorrow and difficulties will come and that none of us will be happy all of the time and that sometimes that will be around Christmas. If you're not feeling particularly happy around Christmas, that's okay. And we want to be the church of Christ around you to love you where you really are and not while you pretend something that isn't real. But get this, there's a promise that we can make as a church, a promise that's already begun but not yet complete, a promise that God will deal with grief and loss 
and sorrow. And God will punish injustice. And God will give mercy. That God will heal and God will deliver. The church can promise the promise that Mary sings about in her song. Where God turns over all the injustices of the world and makes it right. And that God makes it right for those he calls his children. That'll happen. That's a promise we can make. A promise that a world is coming that's more wonderful than any world we could possibly imagine. Because it's a a world with God at the center. We can make that promise. We can make that promise because God made that promise first. He did it by sending his son into this world. To be born of a virgin. And it's his birth. The birth of Jesus Christ the Lord that we celebrate tonight with incredible joy. And so we have a choice. Do we believe our eyes? Or are we going to believe our God and his promises? Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.